Welcome to 71%, a podcast on the most recent research on aquatic ecosystems around the world. We are a couple of biologists and friends who decided to create a podcast originally as a joke, but then it became serious as we noticed a lack of podcasts on aquatic environments. So, why another podcast? Surely there are enough out there already. Well, we are living in the era of podcasts, true, but we are also living in a time in our history where we have a huge debt to nature, and we must learn what we can about the problems as humans are causing to it to be able to take actions that will guarantee our survival and that of the creatures that share this planet with us. So our goal here is to bring you some cool discoveries and news on the ecology of aquatic systems worldwide, including oceans, rivers and lakes, especially to those who don't have access or time to read scientific papers on the topic. On each episode, we'll bring you a discussion on a study, and we hope we'll be able to help spread the scientific knowledge on the environments that comprise most of our world, 71% to be more precise. So, let us introduce ourselves. Here is my partner in crime, Dr. Ben Whitaker. He's from England and uses he or they pronouns. Ben's preferred habitat is the sea at night, or any dark places where he can find fish or any other mystical creatures. He hibernates through summer, and he survives on a diet of vegetables and sarcasm. Well, thanks for my new dating profile. Let me introduce Dr. Laura Capilati. Laura is from Brazil and uses she, her pronouns. Laura can be found photosynthesizing in warm kelp forests, but comes ashore every once in a while to find a good cup of coffee. Her passion for science is matched only by her love for 90s pop punk. Do you have the time to listen to her line? Okay, so let's get started. Ben, do you want to do the honors of our first paper ever? So the first ever paper of 71% podcast, uh, kind of a bit of a, uh, uh, a curveball. In, in that so much we're nowhere really near an awful lot of water and we're in the Sahara. That's a great start. Um, yes, <laughs> uh, in fact, back in ancient ancient Egypt, to be more precise. Um, and so the, the paper that I'll be discussing today is titled The Secrets of Sebek, a cropper, cropper, <laughs> I'll start again, a cropper dopper dot. <laughs> and so... The paper I'll be discussing today is titled The Secrets of Sobek, a Crocodile Mummy Mitogenome from Ancient Egypt. Ooh, and it's cool. written by Evon Hekala. Again, sorry for pronunciations. And they're from Fordham University. And they have colleagues all over the place. Montclair University, American Museum of Natural History, American University of Cairo. Florida International University, University of Florida, University of Copenhagen, and the University of Warwick, so a very international paper. And it was first published in September 2020 in the Journal of Archaeological Science Reports. Mm, so let's get started. So I didn't realize, and perhaps this is me being quite ignorant, I didn't realize that people, uh, ancient Egypts, to be precise, actually mummified their animals. I, I obviously know about the mummies you find in pyramids and Tutankhamun, but apparently they they don't mind mummifying uh, the odd cat or dog. Uh, Especially cats, this, this no? Huge... They were fans of cats. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
cats definitely and i've so i've been looking at what other animals they um mummified and it's quite a long list there's uh mongooses mongooses mong mongooses uh and monkeys lots of different birds particularly the ibis mm -hmm. uh they even uh mummified uh, gazelle fish and apparently even some dung beetles. So I don't know how you'd mummify a dung beetle. I imagine with great difficulty and <laughs> a lot of care. Um, so yeah, animal mummies, they're a thing. Um, I know what I'm going to be going they, as for Halloween were they this always, year. <laughs> were they always mummifi <laughs> mummified with their owner or some kind of, you know, with someone? So I'm glad you asked because I have four reasons why the ancient Egyptians would mummify uh, their animals. Four. And the first one... Yeah, four reasons. And the first one is exactly as you said, uh, they'd often mummify their pets. So perhaps it's like the beloved family cat or the family mongoose uh, passes away. Everyone's very sad. And so um, they would have their animal mummified so that it could be placed with them in their uh, coffin or their tomb. And this was because of the belief that the ancient Egyptians thought to progress to the afterlife and have uh, immortality, you have to be mummified. So obviously they didn't want to leave uh, pet, pet cat Felix behind. And so, yep, they got mummified too. Um, I can understand second... that. I would mummify my cat. I would. Yeah. I think they'd probably not be very happy about it, but... I mean, after they <laughs> die then. Oh yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> Okay, so the second reason is for food in the afterlife. So this I find quite, quite a strange concept, but then I'm not ancient Egyptian, so I can't judge their culture. Um, but they believed um, that they'd take possessions with them in their uh, tomb that they'd need in the afterlife. So some of these obviously would be food. Apparently there's um, records of, of duck and waterfowl and fish being uh, mummified so that the the uh, person who bought them could then eat them um, when they passed across to to the afterlife so yeah I guess that's quite a forward-thinking mum uh, ancient Egyptian I'm, at this point <laughs> I'm wondering where the dung beetle fits if it's a pet or for <laughs> eating or maybe for like cleaning the house a little bit of both <laughs> well it could be and this very nice segue laura into the third reason which could be it could be an offering to a particular god mm. so often when you think of ancient egypt you think of those nice tanned dudes and dudettes uh <laughs> with weird animal creature heads and they're always looking to the left great right? eyeliners oh my god they really they've perfected that um <laughs> It's been downhill since then, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, so they could be offering particular animals to particular gods. So the example I've got here is that the ibis. So the it's like a, I don't know, I guess you'd call it like a heron with a long beak, right? It's kind of like a bird. Mm -hmm. um, they were offered to the Egyptian god Toth or Thoth. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly who was the god of wisdom. Um, so I guess maybe if you wanted to do well in a test, you'd mummify an ibis and send it off to Toth, and then they'd give you the answers. Um, again, not an Egyptologist, so don't quote me on that. And the final uh, reason that the ancient Egyptians would mummify animals is a, as a physical manifestation of a god. So like with Toth, the ibis symbolized Toth. So each god kind of had a different animal that was kind of like their, I don't know if you could call it like their, their like symbol or something like that. So perhaps they, they would offer particular animals to particular gods. 
And so the god that we're talking about today is called Sobek, who was a, a very ancient deity uh, across uh, Egypt, uh, and they had the head of a Nile crocodile. Um, so yeah, not going to win any beauty competitions, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. But uh, so they were they were often associated with authority and power and protection, this this deity. And to appease Sobek, uh, the ancient Egyptians would have mummified crocodiles and crocodile eggs as, as offerings um, for, for Sobek. And I've got a spell here for you because what scientific paper is complete without a good uh, spell? Exactly. <laughs> uh, and this is a spell translated from the Pyramid of Unis. Let me just say how well we are starting this podcast on aquatic environments, <laughs> talking about the ancient Egypt and deities. And well, now we're start as you mean to go on, right? we're doing a spell. Perfect. <laughs> well, wait until you hear the spell before you make any, <laughs> any judgments. Uh, but yeah, so Unis, and I'm really sorry if I'm pronouncing your name wrong, was a pharaoh who lived about 2300 BC, so uh, quite a long time ago. Uh, all amazing times. Uh, and Unis had a spell on their uh, pyramid. And this is roughly the translation of, of how it goes. So Unis is Sebek, green of plumage, with alert face and raised fall. The splashing one who came from the thigh and the tail of the great goddess in the sunlight. Unis will eat with his mouth Unis will urinate, and Unis will copulate with his penis. Unis is lord of semen, who takes women from their husbands to put to the place Unis likes according to his heart's fantasy. Okay. So yeah, Unis sounds like a bit of a player in my opinion, <laughs> and was using this crocodile deity to get away with some naughty shenanigans. But there you go. I thought I I just had to share that when I read it. I thought. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously. So now we're kind of fast forwarding in time somewhat uh, to around 1798 during the Napoleonic expeditions when the Europeans were up to their uh, trick of going to other countries and pillaging lots of nice artifacts. Yeah. And one of these uh, pillagers was uh, a French naturalist called Geoffrey Saint Hilaire. And again, I cannot, I cannot do French, uh, but Geoffrey, We'll call him Jeff from now on. Good old Jeff. Uh, I found a picture of Jeff, and I must say he is very uh, stereotypical of what you would expect these uh, European naturalists to look like. He has a very um, steer-looking face. Uh, he's got a collar on his coat that goes on for days, and he's, he's balding on top a bit. Oh, my gosh, Laura. The sideburns, I think we need to just talk about that these sideburns are, are nearly forming a beard they kind of come so far down the cheek that they're nearly joining up again under the chin yeah. Uh, and yeah he's got I think they were a must-have for the time who who'd be seen without them but yeah so he old Jeff in the the Napoleonic expeditions he went to Egypt and he collected in inverted commas you could say still uh, animal mummies from all across Egypt uh, to compare their anatomy with modern day specimens. Um, so the, it, it sounds as though he amassed quite a, a, a library um, during this time. And 200 years later, so present day, uh, our modern researchers are 
hoping to extract DNA, ancient DNA, from these mummies to compare with model animals to test some of old Jeff's predictions to see if he was right. So that's what this paper's doing. Uh, so yeah, so now we're trying, the we, <laughs> I wasn't doing it, but the paper, the authors of this paper are now trying to look at basically doing the same idea, but instead of using anatomy, using ancient DNA. So kind of a more sophisticated method to, to look at the, uh, to compare the animals from, from back then with now. So we're going to talk a little bit about Nile crocodiles now. Um, I'm pretty sure they don't need any introduction because let's face it, they're a pretty iconic species. They're huge, right? And uh, they, uh, we don't need to talk about them. Um, but there are two cryptic species of Nile crocodile found in Africa. And so for those who aren't familiar, a cryptic species, they're species that look very similar to one another, but genetically are very distinct and very different. So we have two of those in, in Africa uh, in present day. And past sequencing of nuclear and mitochondrial deal, <laughs> I can never say that, past sequencing of nuclear and mitochondrial DNA has revealed these two cryptic species to us. So I think to the eye, it's quite difficult to tell the difference. Um, mm -hmm. So here comes the first Latin blunders of the 71% podcast. Crocodilius nihiloticus is found in Eastern and Southern Africa. And today they're the species we very much find in the Nile. So they're the crocodiles that, when you, when you say Nile crocodile, they're the ones that spring to your mind, right? They're, they're quite big. The other species that we find is, is located more in Western and Central Africa. And it's pronounced, or hopefully pronounced, Crocodilius sucus. Um, so as I said, Western and Central Africa, and today's is found in the Congo Basin. So in order to save embarrassment of me trying to speak Latin for the rest of the paper, we're going to call them the Nile crocodiles and the Congo crocodiles. So they're, they're just the different cryptic species, but collectively, I guess their common name is, is Nile crocodile, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're, for all intent and purpose, they're the same, same group of animals. Okay, so old Jeff, his hypothesis was that the Congo crocodiles used to be found in the Nile way back when, when Egypt was much wetter. So Jeff was basically thinking, okay, past climates were more suitable for this species than the present day, because obviously present day, the Nile's very, uh, well, not the Nile itself, but the habitat around the Nile is much more arid compared to the Congo, which is I'm um, stereotypical thinking here is, is quite uh, lush and, and rainforesty. So that's the theory uh, that Hekala et al. are trying to confirm with the ancient DNA from this mummy of uh, they found of this crocodile. So the, the, the mummy in question is an adult uh, specimen that was found at a temple that was dedicated to the deity Sebek in, in ancient Egypt. So it's sourced from the Nile. And so essentially the, the authors are wanting to compare the genetic material they extract from this mummy and compare it to known crocodilian species to try and see where it fits in the grand scheme of things to try and see if Jeff was talking a load of crap or whether he was onto something. Right, so they collected bone and muscle samples from the mummy. Uh, and I'm not gonna talk too much about the methods because I kind of think it can be a bit dry for people mm -hmm. who aren't necessarily into that. I'm gonna just gonna give a few highlights that I found interesting. So one thing was they had to use a, a specially designed slow drill to extract the ancient DNA because uh, 
obviously the heat that could be produced and the vibrations that could be produced from a, a normal drill could damage this really fragile ancient DNA. So they had to use specially designed uh, equipment and use uh, bleach to clean it and make sure everything was air dried. They collected uh, some uh, blank samples as well. So I think they kind of opened the tubes near the, the mummy. And that's kind of a standard technique to make sure you're not contaminating any of your uh, any of your samples with DNA mm -hmm. um, from, from the collection procedure. And they sent them off to the University of Copenhagen. Very uh, nice extraction things, Aleutian, Qubit, all that kind of stuff that we don't things. need to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah it can yeah. be a bit. Exactly. PCR. That's all you need to know. They did a lot of PCR, <laughs> uh, but they also collected blood samples from living crocodiles uh, from an uh, alligator farm um, so that they've got outgroups to compare mm -hmm. the ancient mummy DNA to. But essentially, they recreated the genome of this ancient uh, mummy crocodile to see where it fits into the, the big picture. And both the muscle and the bone uh, tissue both agreed that this crocodile, with 99.9% .9 confidence, belonged to the Congo group of um, crocodiles and not the Nile group of crocodiles. So that's quite an interesting finding mm -hmm. already, which we'll obviously talk about in a bit. The other thing that I found particularly mind-bogglingly cool, potentially, is that they found human DNA on the mummified samples, but there was no human DNA presence in the blank samples. So they, they present two potential theories as to why that could be. One could be that they managed to contaminate the mummy with human DNA, but they didn't contaminate the blanks with the DNA. Or at some point in the process after that, with all the extractions and sequencing, mm -hmm. that uh, the, the, that sample got contaminated, whereas the other didn't, which to me seems a little bit unlikely. Mm -hmm. Like if you're going to be extracting mummy DNA, you're going to be really careful with that. Yeah, and... it's not like you have a lot of mummy DNA around. Exactly. So I, I kind of feel like their second... Um, hypothesis is potentially the in my mind is the most likely one which is that they could have actually captured the human dna of the ancient egyptian who mummified the crocodile in the third or second century bc right so the guy that was handling the the mummification exactly they could have captured his or her dna which i think is just mind-blowing like it just shows how sensitive this technique could potentially be yeah that they're they're extracting crocodile dna from crocodile tissue but they're actually finding human dna from someone who could have handled this animal thousands and thousands of years ago That's which so cool. Yeah, again, just a hypothesis, but if it's if it's true, that's pretty pretty freaking cool, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so all in all, it seems like Jeff might be onto something here, mm -hmm. and that this uh, Congo crocodile is in the the Nile Delta, which is a bit suspicious. Uh, and so we're moving on to the discussion part of the paper now. And uh, apparently, back in eighteen oh seven, Jeff uh, wrote about some ancient texts that he found. Um, that were describing how the ancient Egyptians used uh, crocodiles in the worship of Sebek. And it sounds like they had quite a nice life. I'm not going to lie. I'm a bit jealous. The crocodiles were decorated with gold and they were given bracelets. They had bling. earrings. They had bling. Like these crocodiles were blinged out. Uh, they were fed cake. You can never be as cool as a crocodile with bling. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, that's the height of that, evolution, that is. really, isn't that it? That was the peak. What... <laughs> Nothing will ever be that cool. That's what we're all aiming for. <laughs> um, but yeah, and they were also fed cake, which, uh, okay, not right. sure that's a great diet for a crocodile, but there you go. <laughs> and they were given wine to drink. Oh my God. So Now we're talking, it's... at. Now the... imagine <laughs> a drunk crocodile. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. A crocodile with a hangover is terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, uh, so that it's it's kind of like uh, suggested that these uh, crocodiles were captive bred or reared in temples uh, that were dedicated to Sebek, particularly for sacrificing and mummifying. And so it's kind of like the authors kind of present it as they're not necessarily just going out and catching any old crocodile from the Nile. They need to make sure that this uh, ritual offering... Crocodiles. Exactly. They need to be blinged at crocodiles <laughs> with a hangover. <laughs> Sebek will accept nothing less. Okay. They, want, they want crocodiles that lived, you know, like yeah. YOLO crocodiles. Yeah, they're, they're like coming in with like all the, the spray tan. Uh, yeah, I'm just like, you know what? I'm ready for mummification because I have lived the life. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So, this is what the authors are saying is potentially they were using these crocodiles uh, particularly, uh, but it is suggesting that uh, what they're calling the sacred crocodile or the Congo crocodile, as I was calling it, uh, were up in Egypt thousands of years ago where they're not found anymore today. Uh, and they're, they're also saying that uh, they think that they were using the Congo crocodile more than the Nile crocodile because the, the Congo cro crocodile, that's a tongue twister, the Congo crocodile is typically smaller and less aggressive than the Nile crocodile. Uh, so it could have been easier for the... To put on the bling. Yep, and <laughs> feed them wine. Although I, I would question if a drunk crocodile is ever going to be uh, not aggressive. Like, I, don't <laughs> I don't see a situation. Maybe it has a, a reverse effect that it has on people. Maybe... They are Maybe. naturally a little bit more aggressive, right? So when they get drunk, they get all loving and, you know. They just need a glass of wine to take the edge off of life. Exactly. And, and they're, they're, all, they're all fine. Lying on their fine. back and... I think this needs to be a paper. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so yeah. let's just do a quick recap. So okay. they, they collected this mummified crocodile from the Nile. Yes. Uh, and then they discovered, with mole molecular analysis, they discovered that this crocodile belonged to what today is a species that lives in the west of Africa. Mm -hmm. And the central region. And the region, central yeah. region. Which is weird because they didn't know that this species of crocodile was found in the Nile region where this mummified animal was found. I think I think so. I think there's a few caveats. Mm. So I think first of all, there are records of different crocodiles living in the Nile, but they're quite old records. And so I don't think anyone was confident enough to say, okay, this record for this crocodile in the Nile is the Congo crocodile. Mm -hmm. So I think there's there's kind of a suggestion that there could be records in more modern history of these crocodiles being there. Um, but no one was confident enough to say, oh, it's definitely that species. Mm -hmm. um, the other kind of caveat is 
it's possible that the ancient Egyptians were going down to the Congo and sourcing the crocodiles from there and doing all the work there and bringing it up to the Nile mm -hmm. because obviously ancient civilizations, as we're finding out, had much more extensive and sophisticated trade routes than perhaps we give them credit for. Mm -hmm. So it could be that this crocodile was from the Congo and it's just one mummy. So there's still, it's very small sample size, but that, that could be a potential reason why. Apparently, they have done some gut content analysis of similar crocodile mummies that were found in these temples, and they had stomach content analysis that would suggest that they were wild crocodiles foraging in the Nile. Um, so potentially, that's kind of means that the authors are on track. Not sure if they found wine in the stomach content analysis, but there you go. Um, so yeah, it's suggesting that in the past, when the, the climate was wetter, these uh, cryptic species of Nile crocodile that nowadays are found in the Congo had a broader geographic distribution. And so you'd find them much further north up into the Nile Delta, whereas today they're not found there. So that's kind of illustrating how we can use material from the past and compare that to the present to see how the geographic distribution of animals is changing and what kind of factors might have been at play in, in that uh, range shift. So obviously with the current talk about climate change and places like Africa becoming much more arid and much more drier, it could be that potentially species like the Congo uh, variant of, of this crocodile uh, group might not be doing so well um, if, they're, if they're needing wetter uh, climates. So yeah, turns out Jeff was right. And in the past, these these sacred Congo crocodiles, Nile crocodiles, whatever you want to call them, they they were found much more up into Egypt. And nowadays we don't find them there. So that's that's a, a bit sad. So yeah, that's that's the end of uh, end of the paper that I chose for this week. Like when I first read it. The thing that jumps to my mind was a bit like, oh, this is a bit Jurassic Park, right? They're extracting ancient DNA from these uh, from these animals to try and find out more. So I guess it kind of shows how quickly technology is progressing and it makes you wonder, okay, in the future, in what, 10, 20 years, we're going to be losing so many species, not just aquatic, but terrestrial as well, because of the mass extinction event that's predicted. Could this kind of technology play a role in preserving some of these species? Like if if we can, you know, I mean, like if we can kind of extract DNA from them, because I know there's a lot of discussion about, is it called de-extinctioning when you bring species back from, from death? Yeah, these It's like, yeah. is that mm -hmm. is that ethically, is that some, is that a direction people should take or... I don't know. But then I guess it's different in this case because the species are still living. These are just like ancient. Yeah, and the, the habitat, even if it goes extinct, it should be still living. It's not like we're bringing back the mammoth or the dinosaurs. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's something that you know it, the habitat is still here. The other organisms that live mm. with that species still are here. So I think if we can, in some way, keep that species alive genetically, mm. if we have enough also genetic diversity, because we yes. don't want like a um, clone army of crocodiles. <laughs> An I mean, army of drunk crocodiles. <laughs> uh, unless they're all as cool as those from the ancient Egypt. Uh, <laughs> I think in this case, though, 
the conservation's more applied because the species is still living. So obviously they've kind of used really ancient specimens, but the information they found kind of implies, it kind of implies that these crocodiles have had a range reduction. And it's kind of implying that this might be because of the climate change. So could that help the management of this uh, Congo crocodile? Um, if they know that it needs to be in wetter habitats, can they kind of section off or manage uh, parks to make sure that it has somewhere to, to live? Yeah, because obviously it wouldn't be worth it wouldn't be worth conserving the species without preserving the habitat, yeah, right? Yeah. Where would they live? They cannot all be destined to mummify, to be mummified <laughs> yeah. and live forever in all eternity with the with gods. With Sabak, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's really cool and I guess it's uh, a really nice <laughs> first I think as I for... think as well, sorry, I was just going to say, I think as well there's something quite poignant to it in that, we're studying a past civilization that's no longer with us. And it's kind of like, okay, the mistakes that they've potentially made, you know, I mean, it's like how much longer will our civilization be around if we're treating the planet in the way that we're treating it? It's uh, a bit worrying. It kind of shows that even these great civilizations aren't as infallible as they probably thought they were. At its height, probably people thought there's no way that this civilization will ever end. There's nothing mm -hmm. that could happen that would bring this civilization down. And they're no longer with us. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of just a bit like, hmm, maybe there's a lesson there for us to learn as well. Yeah, and the Nile isn't the same as well, right? Yep. I guess mm -hmm. just in general, rivers, there's so much fragmentation, there's so much pollution that it's not a good story, really. I'm pretty sure there was like uh, a paper recently talking about how freshwater fish populations are declining. At, I think it was like in the 70s percent that that were losing mm. biomass at that rate. And I, I don't know, I perhaps I'm speaking out of turn, but I wouldn't have thought the Nile was that much different to the other freshwater rivers ecosystems. Mm -hmm. So and yeah, I guess there's dams along the Nile and perhaps that's playing factors in it as well. Because um, you often think of the Nile as being as just in Egypt where it reaches the, the Mediterranean Sea, right? But it goes so much further back into Africa. No, it's, it's super, super long. Yeah. Because weren't there like olden day expeditions where people would used to try and find the source of the Nile and... and like where, where it first began and there's like loads of disputed like oh this is the source of the Nile no this is the source of the Nile mm -hmm. sort of situation it's I'm not sure why people yeah, get they were all in denial <laughs> <laughs> oh you had to go there <laughs> I had to go there sorry but I know don't don't put that in it's gonna be good <laughs> they were in <laughs> denial yeah I think that that was a good wrap up the the thing that you said about looking at a civilization that was thriving and is not anymore it should serve us as a you know just a maybe slight hint as to mm. we're never safe as as good as we are at the moment if we don't think about the future and now the difference between us and the ancient ancient Egypt is that now we have the tools we mm. know what's going to happen in the future 
if we don't do some things and if we do some things and if we keep doing what we're doing now. So we should definitely use these tools to our to our advantage definitely because when you think about it all they had back then was sacrificing mummified animals to different gods whereas now we have the genetic tools to be able to look at the dna from back then yet we still don't seem to learn our lesson on how to treat nature yep exactly all right thanks ben that was a really cool paper that you brought up uh, I think it was a really cool start to our podcast because it shows, goes to show that we can go anywhere <laughs> in, the, yeah. in the topic of aquatic ecology and uh, in our aquatic ecosystem. Even ancient Egypt. Even to the past, why not? Maybe like next time, let's go to the future. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so if you like this podcast, uh, just a couple of notes. Yes. First is that this is our first episode, so mind any, any mistakes <laughs> any slips any amateurism is that a word yes it is we we apologize okay. in advance for our <laughs> our innumerable flaws <laughs> but we we, we, we are we, want, too we are we are noobs and we don't know what we're doing and we would love your feedback so if you have any wait ben did you press record yeah oh my god don't laura you made you got me then <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah so so you can contact us on social media you can email us you can find us on instagram and you can send us constructive feedback and ideas that you'd like to see uh, incorporated into the podcast if you have any papers that you think would be really suitable please uh, drop us a, a message and we'd be happy to look into them and i guess yeah until next time yeah, next time I'll be yeah. presenting a paper. So that's going to be super uh, exciting. Uh, I mean, it's never going to be as cool as the. I wanna, I wanna call adjectives to the to the crocodiles. What can I call? Snappy. It's not going to be a snappy. It's not going to be as cool as the snappy crocodiles. The cool crocodiles. But I'll do my best to bring some, well, yeah, some interesting. As, as long as you don't shed discuss. any crocodile tears. <laughs> We can crocodile rock until the early hours of the morning. <laughs> uh, I'll catch you downstream. Oh, that's, that's good. That's yeah. really good. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So see you next time. Okay. You do it. See you next week on 71%. And until then, we'll catch you downstream. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.